Hello, Vision Nation. Here's a quick clip from this episode. Because the truth is, everything breaks if you try and do it too big. Everything that you think works doesn't work if you stress it too much. And they might say you have no limits. They're lying. There are limits everywhere. They won't tell you what the limits are. And they may never have had a customer who broke them before. Like literally send money from one bank account to another. If you send too big of a transfer, they're just going to close down your accounts. And you're like, why? I sent more money to my bank account. It's not good for you. Get more interest. Like it's too big. And like, what do you mean it's too big for what? Like, what, what's that even mean? Like it's it, that went above your limits. Like my deposit limits are like, yeah. Like you didn't say we had them. Like we didn't think you were going to send like that much money. Like well, I told you I was going to send that much money. It's like, well, we didn't believe you. In this episode, we're going to cover the story of how Sam Bankman-Fried made $20 million doing Bitcoin arbitrage trades. The crazy thing is that he did this while he was in his 20s, and it wasn't a very sophisticated operation either. Basically, anyone with enough determination could have set up that same trade back in 2017. And in case you're not familiar with what arbitrage is, We'll do a quick explanation of that as well. I was blown away while I did the research for this episode. It's a really interesting story. Today, Sam is ranked in the Forbes 100, and he has a net worth of around $24 billion. But this trade that we're going to cover is how it all started. Oh, and Sam's just a very cool person. He has billions of dollars, but he drives a Toyota Corolla and has pledged to give the majority of his money to charity. An amazing guy. One more thing before we dive in. Special shout out to Jason Yanowitz from Empire Podcast for letting me use some audio from his interview with Sam. Empire Podcast is a great resource for anyone trying to learn more about cryptocurrencies and blockchain. They create some top-notch content. I'm going to link to their interview with Sam and their website in the show notes. Welcome to Wall Street Vision. This show is on true stories about markets and top investors. I'm Vlad Dolkochev. This show is for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. Check out the show notes for the full disclaimer. So Sam Bankman-Fried was basically a normal kid born in California in the 90s. Both his parents were law professors, but there wasn't anything super noteworthy about his childhood. He was pretty smart, but he wasn't like one of these uber-genius kids that learned linear algebra in kindergarten. Sam ended up getting a physics degree from MIT and he worked at Jane Street Capital in New York for a few years. And by the way, Jane Street is one of the biggest quant trading firms in the world. So they buy and sell stocks and bonds globally. They have this cool office right in the thick of things in Manhattan. Working in that environment gave Sam some knowledge around how markets and trading worked. Being at Jane Street was a great experience but he was looking to do something different. So he basically wrote up this list of potential things that he might want to do with his life, and then he moved to California. And the list that he wrote out had stuff like going into politics, becoming a journalist, working at a nonprofit, and so on. 
It was pretty diverse, and it didn't really have any hardcore money-making goals attached to it. Then one day in 2017, he was checking cryptocurrency prices on this website, and he saw that Bitcoin was selling for different prices in different countries. Now the price differences were so big that Sam figured that there's got to be an opportunity to make some money with arbitrage. Now arbitrage is a fancy finance way of describing a situation where one asset has different prices in different markets. If this happens and there's a way to make money from the price difference, that's called arbitrage. Here's a simple example. Let's say they're selling bottled water at a grocery store for a dollar. And down the street there's a beach and it's a hot and humid summer day. I'm talking about the kind of day where your forehead has beads of sweat on it after going outside for 5 seconds. Okay, so you can buy bottles of water at the grocery store for a dollar, walk a hundred yards, and sell them at the beach for two dollars because people at the beach are too lazy to put on a shirt and go all the way back to the grocery store. The water bottle has different prices in the two markets, and people happily buy the water for a dollar at the grocery store or two dollars at the beach. So the arbitrage makes a dollar of profit for every water bottle sold. Simple stuff. Okay, back to the story. Sam was in California seeing this potential Bitcoin arbitrage opportunity, and that's when he started up this firm called Alameda Research. This is post Jane Street, so this is when I started up Alameda. And this was like Alameda's first really big trade. He was in his 20s, so he basically just got together with anyone he knew and had them join the firm. I mean, it was like people I knew from, from, I mean, high school, from college, from effective altruism, from, I don't know, like a friend of theirs. Like it sort of like just grew sort of out from like, you know, people who knew people who were, we had like 50 interns coming in and out over the first few months. I mean, it's just like hordes of people. This is 2017. So cryptocurrencies were quickly gaining popularity in Korea and Japan. The price of a Bitcoin on a Korean or Japanese exchange was 10 to 30% higher than the price of a Bitcoin in the US. There was simply more demand for Bitcoin in Korea and Japan, so prices were higher there. Big dollar amounts could not flow easily from one market to another, so you got these huge price differences for the same assets. Now here's an example of how the arbitrage trade was possible. If you can buy Bitcoin in the US for $10,000 and then send the Bitcoin to a Japanese exchange and sell it for $13,000 and then send that money back to the US, you've made $3,000 on your trade. Now there's some currency exchange stuff that you'd need to do as well and we'll cover that later in this episode, but that's the basic mechanism for the trade. Buying low and selling high right away. If you can do that trade every day and including the compounding of your profits, the initial 10,000 would turn into a billion dollars in a little more than four months. Those types of numbers are just crazy, which is why arbitrage is so lucrative and why these sorts of opportunities don't last that long. In stock and bond markets, most arbitrage opportunities disappear within minutes or seconds. 
but in the Bitcoin example, they were around for weeks. In 2017, Bitcoin in Korea was selling for something like 30% more than the Bitcoin in the US. Lots of people wanted to do this sort of arbitrage trade, but there were some issues with doing the trade in Korea. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's, it's like you said, so, well, for Korean Bitcoins, were 30% rich or so. And everyone really wanted to do that trade. I mean, so you buy Bitcoin, send it to Korea, send, sell it for one, and then you're sad. Because then, then you've remembered that the Korean one is a restricted currency. Uh, which means that you cannot freely move it about. So, like, the next step is you got to get that Korean won out of Korea and turn it into dollars, right? In order to kind of, like, start anew. You know, maybe you can't do that. Um, in fact, you probably can't do that, at least not for big size. The Korean won is a restricted currency, which means that you can't easily convert Korean won to U.S. dollars to send to the United States. There are different reasons that some governments restrict their currencies. So Sam had to find an alternative to the Korean trade. So, all right, what do you do then? You can hope that like Bitcoin and Ethereum are trading at different premiums there. And they kind of like do a relative of trade. You can, I don't know, go, go to Korea with a suitcase. A, a, a bit further south, there's Japan. And um, Japan was trading like a 10% premium or something, um, which is not as cool as the 30% premium. It's still like absolutely, totally unheard of in traditional finance. Like you just never see it. In traditional finance, the arbitrage opportunities are really small. So if you have one stock selling for a price that's 0.05% higher on one stock exchange compared to another stock exchange, that's considered a great potential opportunity for arbitrage. With Bitcoin, Sam was looking at 10 to 20% opportunities. So he was looking at something that was hundreds of times better than traditional stock arbitrage. Of course, there's always a catch. It wasn't all that easy because they had a bunch of logistics issues to deal with. I mean, what you want to do is go buy Bitcoin, send it to Japan, sell it for yen, turn that to dollars, send it back, and repeat. Um, and, and then you just start hitting all these roadblocks. Like, this is late 2017, so like, you create a Coinbase account, and like, how long does it take for you to get KYC'd? Coinbase was one of the biggest cryptocurrency exchanges in the U.S., and KYC is the anti-money laundering requirement that all crypto exchanges had to go through for their users. The exchanges wanted to make sure that they weren't involved with laundering money for some Pablo Escobar drug lord, so they did all their regulatory due diligence. Now, at the time, there was this huge increase of people wanting to get into cryptocurrency trading. So these exchanges had thousands of people opening accounts, which caused the account opening process to take weeks. It was just a paperwork bottleneck nightmare. Okay, gotta get AML. Then you sent it from, like, whatever, your JP Morgan Chase account or something, and that gets shut down. Because, like, you, know, you send money to Coinbase, they're like, yeah, they're like, cool, your account's closed. You're like, why? They're like, I don't know, we don't, we don't really want to do this crypto i don't know and, and so now you gotta get a new bank account but of course at this point you're starting to worry that me well what's gonna happen with that one you know is that one getting closed the answer is yeah probably none of this stuff was illegal but u.s banks just didn't want to deal with anything that might lead to a bad news headline i mean if they went along with the cryptocurrency stuff sure they'd make a few extra dollars on fees but the risk of dealing with crypto for them wasn't worth the extra money Okay, so you're playing whack-a-mole with these U.S. bank accounts. 
and you're trying to get increased withdrawal limits somehow on some US exchange. You finally get that, so you wire in your dollars, you buy some Bitcoin, you send it out to your Japanese exchange account, then you realize you can't withdraw yen unless you're Japanese. So you gotta be Japanese and you have to get your withdrawal limits raised there. And then finally you get to the point where you can withdraw, you sell it for yen, you can withdraw the yen, then you realize they'll only send it to a Japanese bank account. So now, I don't know, you're like going, looking for Japanese bank account, but also you're not, well, you gotta be Japanese again to get that. All right, so, so you're Japanese again, you get your Japanese bank account, you like send the yen there and you're like, can we send this to the US? They're like, no, like why not? They're like, no, you don't have an international bank account. Okay, so now you gotta go back and get like an internationally capable Japanese bank account. And then you're like, all right, can we send this to the US? They're like, what are we doing with it? And you're like, uh, it's crypto trading. They're like, can you repeat that? They're like, yes, it's a remittance. And they're like, how much are you remitting? Will this be like more or less than $1,000? And you're like, it's gonna be more than that. They're like, it's gonna be more or less than $10,000. Like, yeah, it's gonna be more than that. They're like, I'm sorry, you cannot do more than that each day. That's yeah. where it's going is that like the actual place is going like, Actually, every single day, I would like to send like $5 million in the same direction to a different country. And it's a different entity. It's like, this is like, you, this is like, this is the sketchiest thing I've ever seen, right? Like, <laughs> this is literally, they just have like, like the, in order to get a banking license, you have to like take a test. And it's like, if someone does exactly this, what are they doing? And you circle money laundering, right? Can you imagine what the poor Japanese bank manager must have been thinking? Here's this 20-something-year-old with a bank account that's getting millions deposited into it every day, and then all that money is immediately getting sent out overseas. Definitely raises a bunch of questions. The bank's probably thinking, is this Sam guy committing fraud? Is he stealing? Is he laundering money for a drug cartel? The bank manager doesn't want to get caught up in something that could get him fired, so you can understand why he was so careful around this. Okay, also I don't speak Japanese, so and they don't speak English. So you hire a translator, and they're like trying to translate arbitrage, and this person's like, "What's arbitrage?" You're like, "Well, you know how sometimes you're doing trading on cryptocurrency exchanges, and they're like, you're buying Bitcoin," and we're like, "Well, we're buying it, but also selling it." They're like, "Wait, which are you doing, buying or selling?" Like both. Okay, and eventually trying to explain it, they're like, "Oh, come on, this is too weird of a story." So, so then you hire a law firm to go talk with like the physical bank teller and the branch. And basically be like a professional, impressive person who says they're doing arbitrage. I guess like I still have no idea what you're talking about, but you're a lawyer. Is this legal? And the lawyer's like, yes, it's legal. And they're like, all right. I'm so impressed by Sam's determination. Other people might have looked at this and then seen the opportunity, but they probably didn't do it because of all those roadblocks. So after all these issues, you'd think, okay, this is going to be smooth sailing now. But the whole process of doing the actual trade was so manual. And now there's no website for any of this. You gotta be there physically each day. They had to have their team physically present in the US bank and at the Japanese bank. There was this one hour window from when the US exchange received the wire transfer from Sam's team. And in that hour, they had to buy the Bitcoin in the US, send the Bitcoin over to the Japanese exchange, then, they had to sell the Bitcoin in Japan to get yen, which is the Japanese currency. They had to transfer the yen to a Japanese bank, and then they had to convert the yen to U.S. dollars and send the U.S. dollars back to the U.S. I, we had different teams in both places. So we had a team of people who went to who spent like three hours a day in a U.S. bank. And we had a different team of people. 
we spent like three hours a day in a Japanese and we'd have like the, the team in the United States. So you get the money off the Japanese exchange and then you have to use the website to turn it into dollars, but it would only do a hundred thousand US dollars at once. And it was like a minute long prompt that you had to click through. It was like many screens that loaded very slowly. The problem is that there's about an hour between when the wire transfer hit Coinbase and when we needed to wire out from Japan. And in that hour, we needed to buy Bitcoin, send it to, you know, Japanese exchange, Bitfly or whatever, wait for the blockchain, sell it, withdraw it to the Japanese account, wait for that transfer, turn it into dollars, and then go wire it out. And so, so we had like five minutes by the time this is over, you know, when we're at this like converting step, um, and it took a minute per $100,000. So we just all stopped what we're doing. We all broke out, got on our computers, they're just like, you know, clicking through. Sam and his team were all logging into the account and clicking through to get as much yen converted into dollars. This was the last step they had to do before wiring the money back to the US. It's so funny to think of a room full of interns sitting around computers clicking like crazy to get the currency conversion done. Eventually, like when we had like one minute left, we were like, all right, guys, it's time. Whatever it's at, it's that, no more. And then someone would call up, you know, our team in Japan and be like, who had been basically like got in line, like got to the front and they just like kept letting people pass them. But like, you know, keeping their spot in the queue for the bank teller. Then we call them like, all right, it's time, go. It's like, this is the notional. And then he, you know, walk up to the bank teller and say, all right, we'll send, like send the wire transfer now. And they're like, to where? And like, set all the details. And I like watched as I typed in like Q7 T. And like, no, it's a G, not a T. I'm like, T, no, 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 no. You got to cross that out. It's a G, not a T. And, and, and then eventually, like, hopefully, they submitted it before the cutoff and you lost 24 hours that was sort of the trade and it i don't know it took us a long time to scale up and get all the pieces and we got them about a week before it went away how crazy is it that in 2018 you still had to be there in person to do this at the bank branch we sent a rover to mars remotely but in order to send money to another country you had to get on a line at the bank a friend of mine had to send an international wire a few years ago, and it took him weeks to get it. It literally would have been faster for him to withdraw the money, put it in a suitcase, and get on a plane himself instead of sending it electronically. So I'm very impressed by how quickly Sam got this operation to work. You might be asking, how much money did they end up sending this way? Well, day one we did like, $200. Like day one, we, we just like want to yeah. test, you know, go from start to finish and see what happened. Okay. So after you test this out, do you just go all out and send all the money at once? So you might think you do it all once, you know, and it's very tempting. And like, I have a very strong instinct that tells me just as much size as you can, just maximize this. Either yeah. you think he's a good trader, it's not. I've had to unlearn that instinct in some circumstances because the truth is everything breaks if you try and do it too big. Everything that you think works doesn't work if you stress it too much. And they might say you have no limits. They're lying. There are limits everywhere. They won't tell you what the limits are. And they may never have had a customer who broke them before. Like literally you send money from one bank account to another. If you send too big of a transfer, they're just going to close down your accounts. And you're like, why? I sent more money to my bank account. It's not good for you. Get more interest. Like it's too big. And like, what do you mean it's too big for what? Like, what, what's that even mean? Like it's, it, that went above your limits. Like my deposit limits are like, yeah, like you didn't say we have to like, we didn't think you're going to send like that much money. I'm like, well, I told you I was going to send that much money. It's like, well, we didn't believe you, you know? I, I, but, but we did it, and then he shut you down. You're like, I don't still understand why you're shutting me down. And the answer is basically like, they just don't even know what to do. 
It's like they they're like it's like yeah. I might get fired. I don't even know why, but I might get fired over yeah. this. Yeah. And my bonus has nothing to do with the performance of this company. So why should I care? Like this is not this customer is not going to make me money personally, but he might lose me my job if I screw yeah. something up. This is where incentives make sense. The bank manager cares about keeping their job. They might not understand what's going on with all this money flowing in and out of their client's bank account, but do they really care? They just don't want to lose their job if it's something shady going on. Of course, by the time Sam scaled this operation, they got up to transferring 10 to $15 million a day. I think we, I mean, we did not have as much capital as we wanted. Also, like, capital is a limiting factor, but I think we got up to 10 or so, uh, you know, 10 to 15 a day at the peak. And uh, it was it was exciting. It was very exciting once it was working because it just it just worked. So you got to remember that the Bitcoin price difference between the U.S. and Japan was around five to ten percent. So if they sent around ten million dollars a day at their peak, they'd make around a million dollars of profit per day. All in all, they made around twenty million dollars in a few weeks. Now, making $20 million in a few weeks sounds amazing, but there are some risks here as well. There's the risk that if the price of Bitcoin in Korea suddenly crashed while they were in the middle of the trade, they could lose a lot of money. There was also counterparty risk, which is the risk that the other side of the trade would not pay the money or deliver the Bitcoin. And there were quite a few cryptocurrency exchanges that got hacked and had money stolen from them. So there was a good amount of trust that had to happen for this whole thing to work. A little later, Sam went on to start his own cryptocurrency exchange called FTX. Forbes put Sam's net worth at over $20 billion in 2022. And the super cool thing is that this guy is very Warren Buffett-like in his approach to wealth. He drives a Toyota Corolla and said he wants to keep only 1% of his salary and that he's going to donate the rest. He's also already donated tons of money to charity, and he's pledged to donate the vast majority of his wealth. All right, Vision Nation, that wraps it up for this episode. If you've enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe or follow button. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. And if you know someone who's interested in investing, please share this episode with them. Thank you so much and I hope you have an amazing day.